The Department of Justice has just announced plans to indict an additional thousand people, more than a thousand people actually, on charges related to January 6th, the worst day in the history of the whole world. We know this because the DOJ sent a letter warning Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the D.C. District Court to prepare for potentially another 1,200 defendants. That, on top of the 1,000 people already charged for taking selfies in horn hats or whatever, for smiling with Nancy Pelosi's lectern, for cracking a Coors Light in the Capitol Rotunda. The timing is raising a lot of eyebrows as it follows directly on the heels of the House GOP releasing security camera footage through Tucker Carlson that showed that most of the Democrats' January 6th, oh, excuse me, January 6th narrative was a lie. Not only was it not a violent insurrection, a coup d'etat led by a horn hat guy, but the horn hat guy himself was actually escorted through the Capitol by the Capitol Police. But that's why. Of course, our ruling class plans to arrest more dissidents now. The release of the security camera footage humiliated the ruling class by debunking its false narrative, which means that our rulers now have two options. Admit their dishonesty and give it up or double down. Which one did you think they were going to choose? Speaking of people being dishonest with the public and with themselves. Dylan Mulvaney has uh, just given me my Rockefeller Center debut. Didn't, I, I, I didn't think I was going to make it to Rockefeller Center. I didn't ever expect to be one of the Rockettes or anything like that, but I have apparently debuted at Rockefeller Center thanks to Dylan Mulvaney's bizarre show, which, which was not just weird and not just an attack on us. It actually tells you something, I think, quite deep about Mr. Mulvaney and other people who suffer from his kind of confusion. There was a little moment. Nobody's talking about it. Uh, we will get to that. And when you want to talk to your friends, you got to check out Pure Talk. Right now, go to puretalk.com. Use promo code Knowles. Do not fall for the free phone deals from Verizon, ATT, or T-Mobile. It is just another trick to lock you into a long-term contract that'll cost you a fortune every month. Instead, get a brand new iPhone 12 from Pure Talk for just $12 a month. With Pure Talk's $30 plan, there is no contract and no interest. You can cancel or leave at any time, get a new iPhone 5G service, and cut your bill in half with Pure Talk. I am a Pure Talk customer. You should be too. I am thrilled that I use Pure Talk. Frankly, just the U.S.-based customer service alone would be enough, but you get the same great network. You get talk, text, data, all that stuff that you want for like half the price puretalk.com. Right now, enter promo code Knowles to save 50% off your first month. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, to save 50% off your first month. puretalk.com, promo code Knowles. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. Of course, people saying, why now? Why would people now, why would the DOJ now be arresting more January 6thers when the narrative behind January 6th just collapsed? That's why. <laughs> that, of course they're doing that now. Because the 
the narrative around January 6th and the way that the federal government clamped down so hard on the January 6th protesters, even after they let BLM off the hook for burning the country down for eight months, even after they let essentially all of the illegal aliens off of the hook, even after they released criminals, spent years releasing criminals and using COVID as the excuse, even after they've called to abolish prisons and reduce penalties for criminals, why would they double down? It's a flex of power against political dissidents, against anybody who dares to question the regime. So of course they're going to double down now because Tucker and the House GOP just humiliated them by proving them again to be liars. So of course that's going to happen now. The libs are going to wield political power and crush their enemies. You're seeing this right now in Pittsburgh, I mentioned that I, I have this debate coming up with a transgender-identifying scholar, uh, Professor McCloskey, who is a very distinguished scholar, has three degrees from Harvard. Not that I would recommend three degrees from Harvard, but, but uh, has three degrees from Harvard, has dozens of academic publications, has half a dozen honorary doctorates. Uh, the question is on transgenderism. And he identifies as transgender. So presumably, this will be a pretty good debate. Of all of the big libs who are transgenderism advocates, who have, who have begged to debate me over the last couple of weeks, I thought, all right, let's pick the toughest one to beat. Let's pick the most erudite. Let's, let's have the debate in a way that's going to be the most effective and present the strongest argument for transgenderism. And then the Pittsburgh admins and activists try to shut that, that down in the name of supporting transgender identifying people, even though half of the debate <laughs> will be done by someone who identifies as transgender. There is a petition now among the students. I think it's about 10,000 signatures trying to shut down this debate. And now Pittsburgh legislators are trying to cancel me. Legislators in the city are calling for the cancellation of this event. And, and the, the university is coming out against it too. The university has said, look, we were essentially forced to hold this event because it's a public university, but we hate it. The, the exact words from Pitt. We understand these events are toxic and hurtful for many people in our university community. The presence of these speakers on our campus does not change the university's unwavering commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. That commitment includes steadfast support for those in our community who are negatively affected by these upcoming events now and in the future. So put my debate aside. Maybe they'll cancel it. Maybe they won't. I don't know. I think it'll be a very interesting debate. Go get tickets if they're still available and you can be in the area. But put that aside for a second. This whole incident is an example of the state taking a side. It's not just a private institution. It's not just some activists. It's not the neutral public square where different voices can hash things out in the free marketplace of ideas. This is the heavy hand of the state taking a side. The state, through the Pitt administration, is saying these events are toxic. Because this also includes an event from Cabot Phillips. This also includes, there, there are some other events involved as well and hurtful for many people. They're toxic. They're saying, if you say that men and women are different and men can't secretly be women and women can't secretly be men and men maybe shouldn't use the women's bathroom, you're toxic. According to not just the activists, according to the state. Okay. I hope that these incidents, especially this talk around transgenderism, puts the final nail in the coffin of this preposterous idea that some squish 
conservatives had deluded themselves with, that the state is neutral, that the political order can be neutral, that the public square can ever be neutral. That is not the case. In fact, the the beginning of the end for this idea, which is a relatively novel idea in American politics, the right only really started to believe this over the last 30 years or so, the final nail in the coffin came when David French, who was a conservative identifying writer, now he is most certainly a liberal writer, when, when David French said the drag queen story hour is an example of one of the blessings of liberty. And the conservative writer, so Rabbi Mari, said, what? <laughs> if that's a blessing of liberty, then I, I don't, I've had enough liberty, okay? I don't think that's what James Madison or the founding fathers were intending by, by blessings of liberty. I don't, I don't think that they meant that uh, perverts can twerk for little toddlers at the library, that, that that would qualify. David French's idea was that the public square is totally neutral, but that is never the case. And the transgender issue in particular proves it because you've got two conflicting arguments for liberty. You've got two conflicting demands for rights and freedom. The women are saying, we want the freedom and the right to our own bathrooms and sports teams and everything else. The men who think that they're women say, we demand to go into the women's bathroom and onto the women's sports teams. Only one of them can win. If, if the men can go into the women's bathroom, then women don't have a right to a bathroom without men in it. If the, if the women have that right, then the men don't have the right to go in. Who decides? Obviously, the state decides. It has to decide. That has always been true in every political community for all of human history. And especially in the United States, where the state, at least in theory, is us, because we're supposed to have self-government. So we, the people, are supposed to be able to decide this. Increasingly, we're not able to decide it, and the people who decide it in our country are activist judges or unaccountable bureaucrats. But that's at least in theory what's supposed to happen. In any case, don't delude yourself into thinking that the state is going to be neutral. It won't. The state is going to do exactly what Pittsburgh is doing right now. They're going to take sides. They're going to attack private citizens sometimes, as, as Pittsburgh is doing now, is attacking a private citizen and calling a private citizen toxic and calling conservatives in Pittsburgh and in Pennsylvania toxic if they believe that men are men and women are women. The question is not, will the state be involved? Will the state take a side? The state obviously has to be involved in certain fundamental political matters. Otherwise, there's no point to there being any state at all. The question is going to be, which side is it going to take? Which, what, which opinion is toxic? The opinion that boys are boys and girls are girls, or the opinion that if men have a desire to be a woman, they should lop off their body parts, and we should do it at a very young age, and men should invade women's bathrooms and locker rooms, whether the women want it or not. Which is the toxic idea? I think we all know. Speaking of college, great report out in the Wall Street Journal. High school seniors are recalibrating their options after the COVID lockdowns, prompting an historic disengagement from school. And you know, I'm very pro-education. I know a lot of conservatives say education's dumb and liberal education is stupid and don't go to college or whatever. That's actually not my view. I'm very pro-liberal education. Some conservatives will say, if you're going to study anything in college, study engineering. I don't think that's true. I think the point of liberal education is to read old dusty books that have no uh, obvious practical application to any job or career or anything like that. I think the point is just cultivate your rational will, make sense of your freedom and, and learn the best of your culture. So I, I'm all for that. But way too many people are going to college. And the journal writes, the, the nation's half-century college-for-all model 
is now falling away toward a choice of either college or vocational programs, including apprenticeships. In the past decade, college enrollment has declined by about 15%, while the number of apprentices has increased by more than 50%. That's good. That's according to federal data and uh, Robert Lerman, who is a labor economist at the Urban Institute and co-founder of Apprenticeships for America. This is really good. Um, Not just dissing college, even though so much of American higher education has gone completely insane. But college in theory and in practice in a few places still in America is a good thing, can be a good thing. But not everything is for everyone. The libs always talk about diversity and how great diversity is. They, They greatly overstate the importance and benefits of diversity. But humanity is somewhat diverse. And not everything is for everyone. So if you send people who ought not go to college to college, that is going to harm them and make the college experience worse for everybody else because it's inevitably going to lead to a lowering of standards. It's going to lead to a flooding of the administrative class with new new babysitters, basically, to mollify students who can't hack it in college. And it's going to raise uh, costs. It's going to create all sorts of problems that, that then will water down the college experience. And you're not going to have people learning any practical skills. So no, this is the, the notion that was discussed with, with uh, regard to affirmative action by the Supreme Court, but it really applies well beyond affirmative action. It applies to the whole idea that everybody needs to go to this one particular type of college. And, and the idea is mismatch, that when you mismatch people and programs, it's going to be bad for everybody. But if people go toward what they are suited for, what they show an aptitude for, what will lead them to flourish, everybody is going to be better off. And by the way, if you t- go into an apprenticeship program, if you start working at 18, you're, you're one, you're going to learn a lot more hard skills, almost certainly than the people who go to college. But it's not like that means you won't ever have a liberal education. You can get your liberal education while you're doing the apprenticeship program. You can read, you can take courses, you can join reading groups and study groups. Plenty of that happens. And that used to happen a lot more in America when there was a richer and more diverse civil life, civil society, before uh, the heavy hand of the total state came in and just tried to homogenize everybody. You can do that. That can be a wonderful thing. There's a, there's a lot more to life than just book learning, okay? There's practical wisdom as well. So good stuff. Really, really love that's There's such terrible news that going around these days. It's always nice to see something moving a little bit in the right direction, the silver lining to the storm cloud of COVID. Speaking of job training, some people in the most prominent jobs in America don't seem to know anything about their own jobs. There's only one person who sits behind that resolute desk. And the decisions that that person has to make are the decisions that nobody else in the country can make. And he's an extraordinary leader. Right there. So Kamala Harris is obviously describing the job of the president. But what's a little awkward here is Stephen Colbert had just asked her, what does the vice president do? And so she gives this answer. There's only one person there, Joe Biden. He's so great. He's such a wonderful leader. He's so great. And so the audience applauds, presumably because a sign lit up telling them to applaud. But then Stephen Colbert leans in. 
an excellent. That's an excellent answer. And uh, the question was, what is the job of the vice president? <laughs> and your answer is part of the job, I'm guessing. Well, you know, my job is to do. I mean, for example, I'll tell you. Um, I was recently in Munich at the Munich Security Conference, yes. and um, and the job there was to stand up. And as you know, most of my career I spent as a prosecutor and. I declared that um, we, the United States of America, believe that Russia has committed crimes against humanity. So, and she goes on and on and on and on. And at no point, by my telling, does she ever answer the question, what does the vice president do? This is not a trick question, Kamala. <laughs> this is not a gotcha. You're the vice president of the United States. You ought to be able to answer, what does the vice president do? What does the vice president do? Well, the vice president... Uh, it casts the tie-breaking vote in the Senate, presides over the Senate. The, the uh, vice president of the United States is one heartbeat away from the president and serves uh, in a supporting role for the president of the United States. The vice president raises money for the, the party of the president. That's an unofficial role, but that's certainly one of the jobs. And what does she say? She goes, the, the, uh, the vice president is someone who, well, uh, okay, I, I, went, I, t- I took a trip to Germany, and my job there was... Um, to, uh, you know, Putin's bad. Um, Putin is really bad. So, yeah. She doesn't know what her job is. Joe Biden, I'm not convinced, knows what his job is. And the job of the president is much more clearly defined than the vice president. And Joe Biden's been in government for well over 50 years now at the federal level. Neither of them know what the job is because they are convenience politicians. I've long said there are two kinds of politicians, convenience politicians and conviction politicians. Conviction politicians are the ones who go out with a vision. This is what I want the country to look like. Convenience politicians are the ones who go out to just be the position and to get a post office named after them and to have people applaud when they say platitudes. Biden and Harris are both of that sort. I, I, I don't even mean to disparage them in particular. There are plenty of convenience politicians on the Republican side, too, who just want to be something and go along and get along. But they're not conviction politicians. That's why they have been so successful within the liberal establishment. Kamala Harris is rather unimpressive. We don't need to get into all of the reasons that she's had a successful political career. But one of them, I think, is that she's basically nothing. I think it's the same thing with Joe Biden, because they wake up in the morning, they lick their little finger, they put it up in the air, and they figure out which way the wind is blowing, and that's fine. They go where their handlers tell them to go. They don't even really know what their job is. That's why the blob, the deep state, the bureaucracy, the liberal establishment, whatever you want to call it, that's why it tends to gravitate toward those kinds of politicians, because it's going to keep rolling along, and they're not going to cause any trouble, and they're not going to be particularly accountable to the people. Now, someone does know what the job is, and someone wants the job very, very badly, apparently, and that would be Governor Ron DeSantis. People are saying, you've been telling people to you have in. to stay in your home. And like in Florida, they were killing us, because even in those early days, you know, when we were following federal guidelines loosely, but we were following some... We were playing golf. I mean, the villages, they're they're setting record for golf. People are boating, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. They were so mad at Florida for doing that. People on the beach, all this stuff. That was their position. You are killing people if you leave your house. So then all these people are, like thousands of people are protesting. 2,000 of these epidemiologists write a letter saying... We do not condemn these protests uh, because of COVID. Indeed, we think they're vital for public health right. because they're fighting racism. It's a bigger disease yes. than COVID. <laughs> and so that's, that's when I knew. Is this, that- this public health, this public health uh, a, a clan of people, they are sick. 
I mean, they are, they are ideologically captured, and these are not people that should be anywhere near the levers of power. These are sick people. I actually got to ask Governor DeSantis once at a dinner. I said, how did you know? How were you willing to take the political bet to reopen Florida? Because forget about the public health threat for a second. Politicians govern in their own interest to, so that they don't get thrown out of office. So I said, you know, if you got that wrong, you would have had your complete political career destroyed. How were you confident enough to take the bet? And he gave me a very simple answer. He said, I looked at the charts. I had top doctors giving me the charts. I knew how viruses work. They go up, they plateau, they go down. It's very simple. I, I was confident in that, and that's what happened. And then you hear him explain here to Glenn Beck, Governor DeSantis looks at all these public health officials who are making things up. The moment that he saw the corruption of stay in your homes, don't go to your grandmother's funeral, don't go to Christmas. Oh, but if you want to go burn down a courthouse for BLM, that's important because whiteness is the real disease. He just said, this is sick. This is obviously not based on any kind of epidemiological science. Okay, we're going to reopen. Now, all of this matters because there's been a debate in the GOP for about six, seven years now. And the two sides have been, should the GOP wield government power in a just way, but effectively when we have the opportunity, or should we not wield government power? Because that's big government and big government's bad and we need a neutral sphere and we shouldn't push back too hard. And the best government is the smallest government. It should fit in the size of, into our pockets. And that's that. Those are the two sides of the debate. You know which side I'm on. I wrote a whole book about this and I talk about it every single day. Obviously, I think the conservatives need to wield more power or we're just going to cede the whole ground to the libs, which is why Republicans win, Democrats win. The libs agenda keeps advancing. So I said, yes, we need to wield government power. Most of the GOP previously and much of, if not most of the conservative movement said the opposite. Don't wield too much power, light touch, let it go. Let's stay neutral. Okay. I think it's pretty clear which side is winning right now. (laughs) I think in terms of the argument, I think our side has won the debate. And so you've got two candidates in particular articulating the view that I've been advocating. That would be Trump and DeSantis. Actually others in the GOP field as well, but because they're the two top candidates, those are the two that, that are really getting these ideas out there right now. They're both on the same side of that question. Wield more government power. Trump was the one as, as a candidate and as an elected politician who was really breaking through here, who was really getting this message across. So the question when you're deciding between Trump and DeSantis then becomes not so much what do they believe, where are the shades, where do they fall on the issues. They agree on the issues. They even agree on the the medium. They even agree on the tactics of wielding government power. The question, it seems, then becomes, who can most effectively wield state power against our opponents and in favor of justice and in favor of the good and in favor of a good, normal country? That's the question. Who can do it best? Who do you trust to do it the best? That's pretty simple stuff. That's like, that's democracy 101. And we forget that sometimes when we, we become so ideological. You know, all of this will pass at some point. Okay. Politics is not forever. Your life is not forever. You will die. That's why you got to get a will and you got to check out Epic Will. Right now, go to epicwill.com. Use promo code Knowles. According to a recent poll, 62% of Americans who think about their own death often do not have a will. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Little like being afraid that your house will burn down, but not having homeowner's insurance. Or being afraid of drowning, but refusing to wear a life jacket. A will 
protects your wishes and your family should something happen to you. When you have one, you have peace of mind because you know you've done your best to protect the ones you care about. I cannot stress enough how important it is to write a will. Epic Will is here for you to get started. For just 119 bucks in as little as five minutes, Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, living will, healthcare power of attorney. Their step-by-step online form makes it super duper easy. All you've got to do is fill in the blanks. I put it off for way, way too long, and it actually gave me low-grade anxiety. Now I know my stuff and my money, and most importantly, my kids are protected. Go to epicwill.com, use promo code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That is epicwill.com, promo code Knowles. My favorite comment yesterday is from Ryan, who said, when the libs start their sentence with, let's be clear, an absurd and bold lie is about to follow. That's so true. As a rule, not saying there aren't exceptions to it, as a rule, when someone says, let's be clear, let me be perfectly clear. Obama always loved this. Let me, let me be perfectly clear. Or when someone says, hey, look, honestly, hey, to be honest, what that tells you is they weren't being honest before. They weren't being clear before. They make a habit out of being dishonest. They make a habit out of not being clear in what they're saying. And so maybe you ought to be a little skeptical of the other things they say too. Speaking of not being very clear, I made my Rockefeller Center debut uh, this this week. That was in Dylan Mulvaney's show. Uh, You may have seen this on some of the other shows, just very briefly in case you didn't catch it. Uh, Here we are. I feel supported, and you know what? I'm feeling lucky. Let's Google my name. Dylan Mulvaney is intentionally degrading women every time he does this woman face minstrel show routine. He is insulting and demeaning them and doing it on purpose and he and profiting off of it, and he doesn't care. Documenting his creepy, fetishized version of what it means to be a girl. Well, Dylan Mulvaney has had some surgery to make his face look more like Bruce Jenner's. Dylan Mulvaney has just given the best proof yet that transgenderism broadly, or at very least the type of transgenderism that he suffers from, is a sexual fetish. Dylan is not a woman. Got Brett there. Okay. I showed it. What? Why would you give them even a second of your big day? Well, these are the people I have to deal with on a regular basis, so I thought I should include them in the evening. Okay, there it is. These are the people I have to deal with a regular basis, so I've, I've just got to, I thought I should include them. That's true. That's true. So he's putting himself in the position of the victim. I have to deal with these people when they criticize the idea that I'm not really a woman. Or when they point out that I'm not really a woman, they criticize the idea that I am really a woman. That's true. That's something you have to deal with. Women have to deal with you and other men invading their bathrooms and locker rooms and taking away their trophies. That's something they have to deal with. We have to deal with the promotion of this absurdity and this highly uh, dangerous and obviously false ideology being pushed everywhere in society, including and especially on our children, even in elementary schools. That's something we have to deal with. So we all have to deal with stuff, and we've got to figure out what's true and what's false and how we want to live together. Okay, But Regardless, that's not the most interesting part of the show. It, it's an honor that Mr. Mulvaney believes that we at The Daily Wire, they played everyone from The Daily Wire, at least who has a daily show. I don't think they hit Drew, because Drew does once a week now, and I guess hasn't talked about Dylan Mulvaney as much. They hit Ben in there too, though. Okay, I guess it's an honor that, that Dylan Mulvaney thinks we're the ones leading the fight against this transgender ideology. That's not the most interesting part. The most interesting part is when Dylan Mulvaney sings later about his identity. 
I don't think that he made a mistake with me. Um, and that maybe one day I will actually be grateful for being trans. That this isn't some curse. Okay, so this, which is obviously performed, but maybe it's coming from a sincere place. He says, I don't think God made a mistake with me. Right. Right. That's the point. God did not make a mistake with you. There is sin and death in the world as a result of the fall of man. There is all sorts of suffering, and that's not because God hates you. It's it's because of the abuse of free will, and it's because there is evil in the world that comes as a result of freedom, but, and that comes as a result of the fault of the fall, but oh, happy fault that won for us so great, so glorious a redeemer. The story has a happy ending. That's true. We can go through all of salvation history. But God did not make a mistake with you and your being. And the transgender ideology says, I am mistaken. Not, not I am mistaken in my thought, but there is a mistake with me. I'm a man, but I really am supposed to be a woman. No. You're a man and you're supposed to be a man. And you might suffer from any number of confusing or tempting uh, thoughts. But you are a man. And so when he sings about this, this longing for God, this longing for... He's trying to fill something in a, a deficiency in his, in his true desires. And, but he's putting it in all the wrong places. He... He knows that something is a little bit off. And it gets back to a point that my priest made years ago, which is, God is, I am who I am. That's what he says his name is when, when Moses speaks to him in the burning bush. He says, who shall I tell them you are? And, and God says, I am who I am. God is being himself, right? I am. Christ says, before, before Abraham was, I am. When you ground your identity in God and accept the consequences that come from that about the nature of the human soul, the nature of the whole human person, our duties and obligations in the world and our obligations toward reality and all the rest of it. When you ground your identity in God, you will know who you are. When you do not ground your identity in I am that I am, when you do not ground your identity, when you turn away, you will be left with a pathetic question, which is who am I? And you will seek to fill it with all sorts of absurd and shallow identities that will change as the wind blows. Do you need something good to watch this weekend that is not woke, derivative babble? Well, my pal, Mr. Ben Shapiro, just released the second season premiere of his delightful show, The Search. His guest is none other than the hilarious, eccentric, freewheeling thinker, Russell Brand. Take a look at the episode. Ben, I can smell weed right now. <laughs> right now. Are we going to just sit here? <laughs> ben! There's a difference between innocent and good. Ah, cool. Let me think about that for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the Talmud, because if it's not in there, I want to know what the hell's going on. I, I, can you I'm smell it? Gonna, I'm not going to be the one who says the weed is kosher. I'm 20 years clean. I didn't think this is how I was going to fall off the wagon. I've with been me. with Bill Maher. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was you and Rogan. Like, I've been you, with you Rogan. Maher, Shapiro that takes me down. For God's sake. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> 
If you have not yet seen The Search, you should definitely check it out. It's a great way to get to know Ben on a more personal level. For those of you who are not already BFFs with Mr. Shapiro, as I am, uh, plus his guests are always interesting and the conversations are loose, unscripted, and entertaining. Become a Daily Wire Plus member today. You will get exclusive access to all our shows, movies, documentaries, upcoming kids content, and of course, the brand new season of The Search with Ben Shapiro. Watch something good this weekend and every weekend after by signing up at dailywireplus.com. Finally, finally, we've arrived at my favorite time of the week when I get to hear from you in the mailbag. The mailbag is sponsored by Pure Talk. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, enter code Knowles, K-N-W-L-A-S, to get 50% off your first month. All right, I'm going to try to fly through these today because I know we're tight on time. Take it away. Hi, Mr. Knowles. I'm a longtime Daily Wire subscriber and Michael Knowles show listener. I'm reaching out for advice once again. In the past, you have told me to tell my boyfriend to kick rocks. Well, I didn't listen and it has not gone well for me. (laughs) He has yet to pop the question and he's still riding on this idea that there's nothing good in marriage for men. How do you suggest young women navigate relationships with men that see no value in marriage? Andrew Tate, Just Pearly Things, the host of the Whatever podcast, they all talk about how women should be more traditional and respectable. I think women are being more traditional and respectable, but they get nothing in return. We could be the best homemakers, caretakers, or even make a lot of money, but still end up 30 and unmarried because today's bachelors just have no interest in marriage. What's your take on how we got here and how we should move forward? Thanks. How should you move forward? You should tell your boyfriend to do the thing that he wants to do with you with himself. You should dump your obviously loser boyfriend. (laughs) It's not just that he doesn't want to pop the question right now. If this guy is telling you, no, I just don't see what men get out of marriage. I don't want to get married. He's a freaking loser. Dump him. He will be a bad husband. Maybe he shapes up. Maybe he reforms. Maybe, okay, tell him to go take care of that. You're going to be dating real men, not that guy. (laughs) I hope you take my advice this time. You know, I hate to say I told you so, but good grief. Yeah, that's true. Women should be more more traditional and respectable and, and virtuous. I mean, that's it. We look to tradition because it gives us a good model of what a virtuous life can look like. But it's going to look a little different into the future because circumstances change, but you, you should do the right thing as best you can. There's going to be temptation. There's sin in the world. You're going to fall. You're going to screw up. That's why we have repentance and confession and atonement and, and standards of virtue and vice. So yeah, women should be more modest and more clear-minded and more courageous and all those ordinary things. And if the men are not going to... Uh, rise to the occasion. Go find a new man. Men have a leadership role in marriage and in relationships. That's true. But men follow a fair bit too. Okay. And so it set the tone. And then if the guy's not going to grow up, then, you know, dump him, get a, get a real man, dump that zero, get yourself a hero. Okay. Next question. Hey, Michael, sitting here enjoying a lovely leftist tears tumbler. Turns out the leftist tears are quite delicious when paired with a lovely bourbon. Doing some thinking, and I was wanting to get your take on something fairly light, um, public execution. Do you think 
in our civilized society, in our modern Western culture, do you think that there's a place for public execution? I'm sort of struck by the fact that we don't tend to see the, uh, I guess, lethal injections now. Um, and I don't know that the deterrence is, is truly there for criminals um, with our current handling and implementation of the death penalty. So, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Certainly. Yeah, I think that that would do a lot to bring back the deterrent effect of capital punishment, certainly. Uh, but furthermore, it would be good because people just don't see death, period, anymore. We used to see death. I'm not saying we need, want more people to die, but we need to recognize that death does happen. We try to run away from death. We try to hide death. We hide aging we pack ourselves full of cosmetics. We pack ourselves full of all sorts of surgeries to pretend that we're not aging. And then when people look like they're about to die, we shove them off into special little centers, old, uh, hospice and old age homes, and we try to just separate them. When they do die, we don't really do open casket wakes anymore. We don't do proper funerals anymore. We do these brief little celebrations of life. We burn up the body as quickly as possible. We ignore the fact that death has happened. Then sometime later, maybe you will have a celebration of life ceremony where you basically just gather with your friends and have dinner to try to process death. But it's a death that you won't look in the face. And so we live our lives trying to put it out of our head. But death is very important. It's one of the four final things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. You are living your life as a preparation to die, and you need to be prepared for your death. In, in, the, in the olden times, people would pray for a good death, by which they meant a death that they saw coming, that they could prepare for, that wasn't sudden. Today, we, people pray for a good death, meaning they don't want to know it's happening. They basically want a piano to fall on their head so that they're just walking along one day with their Frappuccino, having a lovely time thinking about, I don't know, whatever they just saw on Instagram, and then it's all over, and they think they go to oblivion. They don't think that the soul persists after natural death. And so we're, our view of death is just so perverse now, and we're so separated from it that, yeah, public ex executions would, uh, would also help us to have a little memento mori. Of course. Next question. Dear Mr. Knowles, this is Murder of Crows. As a voting far-right conservative, can you recommend a strategic sequence of topical battlegrounds, such as listed in priorities, eradication of transgenderism, eradication of homosexuality, eradication of divorce, and in my opinion, eradication of evolutionary ideology. Thank you very much. You're a little, a little bit uh, scattered in, in your plans, and, and you're a little bit vague in your plans, uh, but, but fair enough. I mean, you, you see that the libs have taken a lot of ground in the culture, and we should take some, some ground back. You're missing a key part of it, though, which is when I called to eradicate transgenderism, I called to eradicate it from public life. And I think this is the real key here, and this is what's really persuasive to people. And it's the reason that the libs reacted so strongly against my call for it. We're, we're not proposing that we go in, drill a hole in some confused man's head, find the, the parts of his brain that are firing off to make him think that he's a woman and pulling those parts out. Nobody is proposing that. Nobody is saying that the man can't put on women's undergarments in his own bedroom, that we're going to send the purity police in to arrest him for that. We're saying he can't go into the women's bathroom. 
That's what it means. That's what it means to eradicate transgenderism from public life. It means it can't be taught in schools to little kids. It means it can't be uh, promoted as a, as a matter of your employment, okay? It means we're not going to accept it as a matter of public life, and if eccentric people on the fringes want to entertain weird ideas, that's fine. You, you mentioned homosexuality. Again, all the, the, the ality of it all, I, I just wonder, you're not, you're not going to eradicate uh, disordered desires. Disordered desires are just a fact of a fallen world. But you could recognize the meaning of marriage again. We only redefined marriage as a matter of public law in very recent years, and it's had disastrous consequences for marriage broadly and for the raising of children and all the rest of it. So you could just say, no, we're just going to say that there is such a thing as marriage, and marriage involves sexual difference, and that's that. Okay, you mentioned evolution. You don't want the Again, with evolution, there are like a thousand versions of evolution. And so, but you say, okay, I don't want this to be taught in schools. Well, one way to do it is to say, okay, in this school, in this community funded by these people, uh, we're not going to teach Lamarckian evolution. We're, gonna, we're not going to teach Darwin. We're going to teach Lamarck. Or we're not going to teach Lamarck. We're going to teach, uh, I don't know, some non-evolutionary older theory or whatever it is. Uh, the public life is the important thing here. Because I think people are going to agree with you and say, yeah, you're right. We don't need, I don't need to see this stuff. Okay, if you know, if a guy wants to put on women's underwear in, in his closet, you know, okay, whatever. He shouldn't, but like, fine. But but if he's going to bring it out into public life, then we have a say over it because we're supposed to have a self-government. We have a great member block coming up. That would be with a man who you may have seen on social media. His name is Dave Dana. Dave was very very overweight. His weight was somewhere around 420 pounds, 420, nice, but it wasn't nice, and he knew that it wasn't nice. So he said, I want to lose weight. I'm going to say no to body positivity, this body positivity movement that encourages people to be unhealthy, really body negativity if you ask me. And he's been hitting the gym, and he's been getting a ton of support from some of the biggest figures in in among celebrities, among fitness people, among, and he's, he's really taken off. The rest of the show continues now. You don't want to miss it. Become a member and use code Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S, at checkout for two months free on all annual plans.